For those of you that are remaining in the auditorium and watching online, take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. It is my plan this morning to work through the first 29 verses of this chapter. I may have bitten off more than I can chew, but uh, we want to work through this text together this morning. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 29. There's a couple things, though, that we have to do before we get into the text, and one certainly is to lay out for us, once again, the context of this passage, both historically, what is happening here, to whom Paul is writing, and why he's doing so, Uh, But also, literarily, what is he doing here in this text? What is the flow of his argumentation? What is he trying to to explain to us? What is his his point? What is his goal? What is his message? Before that, though, this morning, I feel like we need to even do some more work in that we need to preface this. This is perhaps one of the most contested and contentious passages in the New Testament, perhaps even in Scripture. The discussion regarding God's sovereignty and man's responsibility has been going on since there have been people, and certainly post the uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ uh, in the church, this discussion and debate uh, has been going on since very early on, within the first uh, three or four hundred years of church history. Uh, Certainly, we have Augustine and Pelagius. We then have this debate that sort of rages once again during the Protestant Reformation, and it continues on today. And if you go on to YouTube, there are whole channels dedicated to this discussion. How do we understand the the, uh, two realities, the dual reality of man's will made in the image of God? And part of that Imago Dei is the ability to choose, the ability to make decisions, the ability to bear responsibility for those decisions, and also then the sovereignty of God. The fact that God is in the heavens and does as he wishes, the reality that all things work together according to the predetermined uh, foreknowledge and foreplanning of our Lord and Savior, of God Almighty. How do we reconcile those uh, two things? And since people that are far more intelligent than I am have wrestled this w- with this for far longer, I do not want us to go into this passage this morning with an attempt to either um, buttress our position or to say, listen, I need you to listen to that sermon uh, by my pastor because he's going to prove you wrong, or this is not about winning a debate This is a passage about the overwhelming mercy of God, and when we use it for our position theologically, I believe we misuse it, we misunderstand it, we misapply it, we miss what this passage is all about. This text before us this morning is about the overwhelming grace and mercy of God. Mercy is used repeatedly throughout this passage, and that's Paul's point. How in the world do we have hope knowing the depravity of our own hearts? Knowing how bad we are and how bad it is, how do we have hope? Our only hope is the mercy of God. Mercy that must be freely given because if it is not, then it is not mercy. Grace and mercy cannot be earned. If they could, they wouldn't be grace and mercy. And so we have to keep these things in mind. I will say this. It does certainly help to know the literary context of this passage. Paul, bear in mind, has written before this chapters 1, 2, and 3, and in particular chapter 3. 
And if you can come out of Romans 3 believing that there is any innate goodness in humanity, then you haven't read the chapter. Go back and please read it again. Paul has attempted to show in his argument to the church in Rome, to the Christians in Rome, that there is no such thing as innate human goodness, that all there is is the fall. He, he sort of expands on that in chapters 4 and 5. In Adam all die. There is no innate goodness. We are completely depraved through the core of our being. So again, you know, coming here to Grace Baptist Church Sunday in and Sunday out, if you want your ego stroked, there's other places where that can happen. It's not going to happen here, all right? We are all lost and undone before a thrice holy God. We are sinners from birth. Uh, David says that in Psalm 139. Job speaks of this. It speaks of from the beginning of Scripture to the end. From Genesis 3 on, humanity is in sin. That must be kept in mind as we come to Romans 9. To the degree that we take any credit for the mercy of God, we diminish the mercy of God to that same degree. To the, same, to the degree that we believe that we deserve God's grace or mercy, to that same degree we diminish how amazing His grace and mercy actually is. And so don't read uh, Romans 9 in isolation from Romans 3, Romans 1, 2, and 3, 4, and 5, and on through. That said, though, even literarily, uh, uh, we come to chapter 9 out of chapter 8, and the last couple sermons have been amazing, not the sermons. The texts have been amazing, all right? You are saved, you are foreknown, foreloved, predetermined, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You were called, you were justified, you are going to be glorified. Who can stand against us if God is for us? Who can be against us? We are more than conquerors. All of these things, and we've got a lot of amens and clapping, and yet now we come to chapter 9, and some people believe that 9, 10, and 11 are an excursus. They're kind of like a parenthesis. Put one parenthesis at the beginning of chapter 9, another parenthesis at the end of chapter 11, as if Paul wanted to get to chapter 12, but on the way there had to stop here and put this aside in. This is not an aside. This is a very real uh, argument that Paul must make. It's a, it's a subject that he must address. And here's the, what's going on. Bear in mind then to whom he's writing. He's writing to Christians in Rome, largely Gentiles, but there are certainly some Jewish Christians there. Jewish Christians that had been expelled from the city of Rome, and about three years before this letter was written, they were allowed back in. So they are there in Rome, freshly back in the city of Rome, and Paul, whenever he goes to any city physically, when he's there in person, the first place he goes to is the synagogue. You note this pattern in the Acts. He goes into every new town that he goes in, he first goes and preaches, the Messiah has come, we're not looking for him in the future, he's here, he's been here and gone, it's Jesus Christ the righteous. Jewish, our Jewish Messiah has been here, Jesus, he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, he's here. Believe in him, repent of your sins, and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. Generally speaking, he's kicked out of the synagogue after a short period of time and then goes to the Gentiles. Having not been to Rome, although he desires to go there, he is speaking first to his Jewish audience. And so he has a couple questions then that form the basis of the reason for chapters 9, 10, and 11. The first question is this. Did God fail? Because, Paul, what you said in chapter 8 was, God's purposes never fail. And those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
Who can bring any charge against God's elect? Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So if God's chosen people are in right relationship with him and will one day see him because they will be as Christ is, then what happened to the Jews? Because, Paul, as I look around the church here this Sunday morning that this letter is being read, I don't see a lot of Jews here. Certainly the majority is Gentile. And in the city of Rome, I don't see a lot of Jews. And in the world, I don't see a lot of Jews believing in Jesus. So, Paul, what happened then to the Jews? Why did they reject the Messiah? In fact, it's because of their rejection of the Messiah. Now, it's ultimately because of all of our rejection of the Messiah. But in a historical sense, it's because of the Jewish rejection of Jesus as the Messiah that he was crucified. So what happened, Paul? If you're telling me all these amazing things in chapter 8, then, then what happened to the Jews? Because all those things were supposed to happen for the Jews too, and I don't see it, Paul. So did God fail somehow? I don't see the nation of Israel all believing in Jesus, coming to faith in him, and in right relationship with you, with the Father. I don't see that, Paul. So did, did God fail somehow? Second question. If... God failed in the past. And Paul, I don't want to doubt you. I'm not calling to question what you've said here. It's great. It preaches. But how in the world can we trust what you've just said will happen for the church? Because if the nation of Israel, the chosen people of God, the majority of whom have rejected Jesus as the Messiah, if, if, if they're not in right relationship with you, then how can all of these amazing promises that you have uh, said are ours in Christ, how can we trust that that's true? This whole idea about, yeah, we're justified and called, but how do we know that we will be glorified? If Israel can get off the rails, if Israel can reject their Messiah, then is that not possible for us too? So Paul, what hope do we have, if God failed in the past with Israel, that he will not also then fail with the bride of Christ, with his church? This is then the question to which Paul gives his attention in chapters 9, 10, 11. It is not an excursus. It is a necessary question or questions to answer because of all the things that he said and led up to ending with chapter 8. So now he goes into chapter 9. With all of that preamble, let us then read the text together. So I'm going to read the text in your hearing. Follow along if you would. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 29. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, anathema, and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, ethnos, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had, nothing, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve 
the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we then say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is the word of the Lord. So, what is Paul's answer here? What is, what is his point? He's trying to show to his audience, in particular the Christians in Rome, that despite what it may look like, these promises of God that were given to the Israelites of God's mercy were fulfilled, and therefore all the same promises that God gives to those of his church, those who repent and, and have faith in Jesus Christ, will also be fulfilled. Where does he start? We see in verses 1 through 5, Paul's heart of mercy. Perhaps, although we don't know that Paul is trying to answer directly someone who has sort of diminished his ministry, we know from the letters to Corinth that that was the case there, but we don't know that anybody in Rome is sort of uh, being negative towards Paul, but Paul has become known in his missionary journeys as the apostle to the Gentiles. And perhaps he may have, there may have been some rumors or some thoughts that he was a traitor to his upbringing, that he had somehow abandoned his roots, that he was no longer a true ethnic Jew, but he had abandoned his, his kin, uh, and, and somehow now he, he's, he's all in with these goyim, with these Gentiles. And, and Paul wants to let us know where his heart is coming from. And these truths that Paul is writing for us are not then cold, heartless, calculating, ivory tower academia for Paul. There's a very real heartbeat behind this. Notice this heart of mercy that Paul has for his fellow Jews. He grieves for them in verses 1 and 2. Paul grieves for his fellow Jews. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, and how that's written in the original language, there's actually a sense in which he's calling Christ 
to bear witness to the fact that what he says is true. And then he actually says, my conscience also bears witness in the Holy Spirit. And so two members of the Trinity at least are, are bearing witness to what Paul is saying, that, that, that it's true what he says. And what he says is that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. There is something that bothers Paul and it bothers him consistently. And what has bothered him consistently is the Jewish rejection of Jesus. Everywhere he goes, he goes to the Jews first, even though he's the apostle to the Gentiles. He wants his fellow Jews to know Jesus. Jesus is Jewish. Paul will say that in verse 5. He's Jewish. Paul is. He wants his fellow Jews to say, the Messiah is here. The one long prophesied, the one that we've been waiting for, he's come. Believe in him. And yet there is this consistent rejection of the Messiah. Those that say they are in right relationship with God are actually very far from God, and that grieves Paul. Notice he longs for their salvation, so much so that in the spirit of Moses, he says in verse 3, he could wish himself accursed from God so that his brothers according to the flesh, his fellow Jews could come to faith in Christ. Moses in Exodus 32 goes to bat, so to speak, on behalf of the nation of Israel. As he's up in the mountain receiving the law, the nation of Israel is at the bottom of the mountain actively and outrageously worshiping an idol. And God says to Moses, I'm going to destroy this people and raise something up new with you. And Moses says, no, don't do that, God. Even if you take my life, spare your people. Paul stands in the gap, so to speak, in the spirit of Moses to say, if it were possible, which it's not because he's just got sent saying in chapter 8 that it's not possible, but if it were possible, he could almost wish that he were cut off from Christ so that his fellow Jews would come to see Christ for who he is, their Messiah. And so he notes in verses 4 and 5 how tragic Jewish unrepentance is. It's unspeakably tragic. Notice all the benefits. There are six mentioned in, in verse 4 and two additional ones in verse 5. They are the Israelites. What belongs to them? The adoption. They are called sons and daughters of God. The glory. They were, they were uh, witnesses of the glory of God. That it, the, the pillar of fire at night and the pillar of cloud during the day. The Shekinah glory of God came down and resided above the cherubim and the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies and the Tabernacle. God himself, the one who spoke everything into existence, was with the Israelites. Literally. The covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, so many promises and covenants of God. The giving of the law, they had the word of God. Paul references that in chapters 1, 2, and 3 and beyond. He says the Jews had the law. The Gentiles don't have the law. They've been excluded from the word of God. At least it was given to the Jews first. The worship. They had the worship of God, the worship of the one true God and the proper way to do so. That was a right of or a privilege, I should say, of the Jewish people and the promises similar to the covenants. All these things were Jewish blessings that God bestowed on his people. And in verse 5, they also have the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from their right race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Jesus is Jewish, ethnically speaking, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. 
How many more benefits could you possibly have? How much more mercy could you possibly be shown as a nation? And yet, what did they do with all of that? They killed the prophets. They denied the scriptures. They substituted for the scriptures of God the commandments of men, and they killed the Messiah. And this does not then engender in Paul rage or anger, but it, but it is in his, the depths of his heart grief and anguish that they do not see the mercy of God. He has a heart of mercy for his people. And so then note in verses 6 or 29, God's heart of mercy. This passage, while it does talk about God's sovereignty and the rest of chapter 9 into chapter 10, which we're going to look at next Sunday, we'll talk about human responsibility. That is there. It is undeniable. I have my own theological construct, certainly. But the reality is, let the passage speak for itself. The point of the passage is not to have an argument about God's sovereignty versus human responsibility. The point of the passage is to put on display the mercy of God. Notice verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. God's mercy cannot fail. Not even human responsibility, human choice, human freedom can cause God's mercy to fail. We know that if we made choices, all of those choices would be sinful. That's who we are from Genesis 3 on. And not even that can stop God's mercy. And so Paul says... I long for my people to see that Jesus is their Messiah. He's everyone's Messiah, but for the nation of Israel, he is their Messiah. I long for them to see that. And right now, it seems like a majority of them aren't seeing that. And so my heart grieves for that. But that does not mean that God has failed. So if God did not fail in his purposes and promises to Israel, there is hope then that he has also not failed for his purposes and promises for us. So notice how he uh, outlines this then. In the second place, we note that not only can God's mercy not fail, but it is free, never coerced. If mercy is given as a result of human merit, it's not mercy. Mercy that is earned is not mercy. By grace you are saved, Ephesians 2. And Paul talks about that the whole time leading up to chapter 9. He's tried to convince, in particular, his Jewish audience in Rome, the law cannot save. The law cannot maintain a relationship with God. In fact, he's made the point, the law makes you sin more. So, it is not human effort that can cause God to be merciful. If God's mercy is to be mercy, it must be free. And Paul's going to prove that from the text of Scripture. So what does he say in the latter part of verse 6? For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Well, what are you talking about, Paul? There is a biological connection to Abraham, but also a spiritual connection to Abraham. There are those ethnically that can trace their ancestry back to Abraham and call him their father, biologically, ethnically. There are also those, because of repentance and faith, that can call Abraham their father, not biologically, but spiritually. This is a distinction that Paul's not making all on his own. Jesus made this distinction in John 8, 
What does he say in John 8 to those that are assembled? The religious leaders are there, and they are saying to Jesus, we are of our father Abraham. And what does Jesus say to them? You're not of your father Abraham. If you were, you would believe me, but you don't. You are of your father, the devil. So just because these religious leaders can say we're Jewish does not mean that they are in right relationship with God. It does not mean that they are spiritual sons of Abraham. And so Paul picks up on this and says there is a Israel within Israel that is true Israel. How does he prove his point? First, he goes to Ishmael Isaac. There were two original sons of Abraham, Ishmael by Hagar and Isaac by Sarah. And he says the promise did not go to Ishmael. The promise went to Isaac. So Ishmael could rightly say, Abraham's my father too. But Paul's point is, but he's not part of the covenant community. He's not part of the promises of God. Now there might be those that are listening to this letter and saying, yeah, well that makes sense because he's not of Sarah. He had a different mother, same father, but a different mother. Okay, so then Paul goes on to say, yes, but Abraham and Sarah had Isaac, Isaac marries Rebekah, and Isaac and Rebekah have Jacob and Esau, twins, same mom and dad, and you can't get biologically more close than twins. So here you have two individuals that can both trace their lineage through to Abraham, same mother, same father, both should be part of the promises of God, and yet, Paul says, before they were even born, they had not done anything good or bad. It's not based on what they would do when they are out of the womb and as they grow into adulthood. Nothing to do with their future. In the past, before they were even born, God says to Rebekah, the older will serve the younger, which is not how it's done in that culture. The firstborn had the right of the birthright. The firstborn had, had the rights. And yet Esau despised his birthright. And so the younger son of the two twins actually gets the birthright, and he's the son of promise. In fact, Paul goes on to quote from Malachi and says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God's mercy then does not extend to everyone who is ethnically tied back to Abraham. God's mercy is freely given to those to whom he chooses to give it. And even in the circumstance where you have twins that you could rightly say are uh, connected together in that way, uh, the reality is even there God's mercy is free. It cannot be coerced. So what do then we say in the third place? The question comes in verse 14. And Paul, as he does didactically, all right, so he has this uh, um, uh, method that he uses where he sort of preemptively sees, well, what are the questions that might be asked? So he says, what shall we then say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Is God then unfair? If God showers mercy on one but does not put his mercy on the other, is God then unjust? And of course, the answer is by no means, this favorite phrase of Paul in the book of Romans. There's no way that that could be the case because that's not who God is. God is justice. He defines for us what justice is. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Notice verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Mercy does not come as a result of human effort. It can't. 
If it did, it wouldn't be mercy. It would be something else. Paul has previously said in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. A wage is something you earn. But the gift of God, the gift of God, right, is Jesus Christ our Lord, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So salvation, God's mercy, must be free. And even though it is free, it is not unjust or unfair. Again, a lot of this depends on your view of you. All of us, by our own choice, are rejecting God. We are evil to our core. For anyone to be an object of God's mercy ought to cause us to praise him forever. He's not unjust. does not depend on human will or exertion. It is God who is merciful. And that's who he is. Notice he then goes to Pharaoh. I raised Pharaoh up, he says, that I might show my power. Power, same word from Romans 1.16, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That hardening is not the same as mercy. God's mercy is an action whereby he does not give us what we deserve. And grace is that by which he gives us what we do not deserve. The hardening here is not that God is causing sin in the human heart. He's simply allowing sin to have a fuller expression. He says to Moses in Exodus 3, before Moses ever goes to meet up with Pharaoh, that I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's not creating sin. God cannot sin. He cannot be tempted by sin. So we know that the sin cannot originate with God. But he simply allows Pharaoh to give fuller expression to who Pharaoh already is. That is God's hardening. It is only by God's grace and mercy that anyone is restrained from giving fuller expression to the evil within. Thank God for his mercy and grace. He gives Pharaoh at least ten opportunities to repent. How do you see the utter magnitude of the one true God, especially when every single one of the ten plagues directly contradicts one of the Egyptian deities that Pharaoh would have worshipped? And after a certain point, early on in the plague process, the magicians cannot replicate it. It is so obvious to anyone, objectively and rationally, that this God ought to be worshipped, this God ought to be submitted to, and yet Pharaoh does not. He is, give, he is allowed to have freer expression to the evil that already exists in his heart. God is not unjust. God is not unfair. What would be fair is for every human being to spend eternity in hell. What actually is unfair, if you want to talk about fairness, is that God is merciful to anyone. But then that leads to another question. And we see in the fourth place God's merciful sovereignty. You will say to me then, in verse 19, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? If someone, by God's will, is going to give fuller expression to the evil that is already within them, then aren't they actually obeying God's will in a twisted sense of logic? What does Paul say? Is two answers to this. Number one, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? And O man in the original Greek is at the beginning of this sentence for emphasis. We are finite, puny, small. We do not have understanding of the infinite realities. And so who are you, Paul says, to answer to God? Who are you to presume to know better than God and know more than God? Who are you who is a created thing 
to question the one who created you. That is not our place. The creator has the right to do whatever he wishes with his creation. And yet, Paul goes on to say, what if, and this is a hypothetical, God desiring to show his wrath and make known his power again, same power unto salvation, same word power in 116, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And he's going to make this point further in chapters 10 and 11. In many ways, then, even the wrath of God is a mercy from him because it shows, once again, who he is and reminds us of his presence. I've used this illustration in the past, but if tonight we were able to go up above the city of Charlottetown and our eyes were open to be able to see every act of sin that takes place just in Charlottetown, just tonight. I believe within mere milliseconds, we would want to turn our eyes away. The sheer amount of jealousy and lust and greed and assault and, and just the sheer amount of sin and destruction and hate that is present even just here on our island, even just in one evening. And you see that the very God of heaven sees all sin that takes place all the time, all around the world, and he stays his hand of judgment. Why does he do that? His mercy. He is even now calling sinners to repentance, sinners who believe themselves to not be in need of his mercy, sinners who actually reject his mercy. We look at the story of Lot and we see that God sends angels from heaven down to rescue one family from a city that is wholly given over to sin. And even that family doesn't want to go. Lot doesn't even want to leave, and his wife and children don't either, and God saves four people from that city, and even the saving of them takes mercy of a great magnitude on God's part. He almost drags them out of the city kicking and screaming. Do we look on that story and say, well, why wasn't God merciful to everybody else? Or do we thank him that he was merciful even to the four individuals that he brought out of that situation before he rained down his appropriate and just judgment? Which leads us then, finally, in verses 24 through 29, the reality that God's mercy cannot fail. He quotes Isaiah, Those that were not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved I will call beloved. Call them sons of the living of God. He says from Isaiah, even though the sons of Israel, ethnic Israel, biological descendants of Abraham, be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. And Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, spiritual offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What hope do we have that God's mercy will prevail? We have hope that God's mercy will prevail because as we look down through history, we see that God's mercy has prevailed. He has always left himself a remnant. And in the midst of human sin and destruction and hatred and unkindness and grudges and all of the lust and jealousy and pain and murder and all that humans have done, 
in and through all of that, God has always been there, and there has always been a remnant. He's always saved a remnant. Even if it's only eight people on an ark or four people out of Sodom and Gomorrah, God always is merciful. So if he's always been merciful in the past, we have great hope that he will continue to be merciful in the future. And as we look around at our society, we see things getting maybe worse and worse, and not just with pandemic, but morally. We just see how things are going farther and farther away from God. We should not lose hope, but we should have great hope that our God has always been a God of mercy and will always be a God of mercy. That is our hope. Our hope is not in human ingenuity, human talent, human giftedness, or the human capacity to be good. That does not exist. Our hope is only in the God who is righteous and who is mercy. And I pray that we find our hope in him even this morning and even as we come and commemorate and celebrate the greatest act of mercy, the sending of his son for us. Let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for this time together in your word. We know that this is a difficult passage, and our sensibilities by times are ruffled. There are things said in here that our sense of freedom and of our own uh, human will react against, and yet, Father, the reality is that left to our own devices, we would always choose sin. That is who we are. We need your help. We need a Savior. You have provided one, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And yet, as we've seen even from your own nation, when the Jewish Jesus went to his own people, the Jews, he was rejected by them. And Jesus is being rejected today by all ethnicities. And yet, there will always be some who turn in repentance and faith to him, Father, because you are still the God of mercy that you have always been. And so we thank you for that and are grateful for that this morning. We are thankful for the opportunity to participate in the Lord's Supper in this time of communion, to be reminded again of that amazing act of your mercy and grace that you poured out the penalty for sin on your son instead of us and offer to us his righteousness, a righteousness that we could not uh, earn, that we could not produce on our own. Father, I pray that we would just be so overwhelmed by your mercy and grace this morning and, and see our time together as we wrap up the service as another act of gratitude and thanksgiving. Father, we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.